Hello everybody and welcome to the latest edition of the LFC Red Poets Podcast. I'm your host, Des Lawson, and tonight I'm joined as normal by my partners in crime, Tom Keegan and Peter Warburton. And tonight we have a very, very special guest, a man who was just about to start his 61st year following you know, both Merseyside clubs as a journalist. What he hasn't seen is not worth writing about. I give you a big welcome to a man I've got great admiration for, who I've known for many years, Mr John Keith. Welcome Let- to the podcast, John. Les, thank you very much indeed. It's my 61st season covering football. It, it's not all been on Merseyside. Most of it has, but um, there were some when I was in Northern Ireland. That's when I got to know George Best very well. But most of it's been on Merseyside, which has been unbelievable, really. You know, I've been so privileged uh, to have witnessed and what I've seen and the people I've met, you know. So, in fact, I was working out the other day there have been 27 Mersey managers since I started at both clubs. Um, Catterick and Shankly were the first ones when I started. So it's a lot of, um, and goodness knows how many players, thousands, I would imagine. John, do you actually remember the first time you actually met Shanks? And what was your first impression of him? Yes, I, 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 was, um, I was on the Bootle Times then, Les, and I did a... I did a weekly football column based around Everton and Liverpool, and it was in the it was in the old corridor at Anfield. And he walked out of the dressing room in his James Cagney Mac, you know, <laughs> hello boys, because <laughs> the, the the press lads would all gather. It's it, it's not like today where it's, it's totally stage managed. Then it was catch as catch can. So players and managers coming out of dressing rooms, we would lie and wait for them, and there he was, um, and. You know, obviously, I'd read a lot about him. I'd seen him on television. I'd heard him on radio. But when you when you actually met him, he had an aura. He did have an aura, a presence about him. And he was always built so very well dressed. You, you could almost see a reflection in his shoes. They were always highly burnished, highly polished. And um, that incredible voice, it's just incredible. No, he was, uh, he was an amazing man. Amazing. Yeah, as I say, you must have. Were you were, were you ever in awe of him? Were you ever? Did he ever have that sort of scare factor, if you like? You know, where you're sort of wondering, oh, if I say the wrong thing here, I could, you know, you, you know I could be ostracised, or you know, he might remember who I am and sort of give me a, you know, a, a stare or a stern word here or there. I wasn't in awe of him, but I had to be. You have to be very careful with Bill because um, you, you mentioned the word ostracised. He wouldn't do that. I mean, the thing with Bill, he'd have a row with you, and ten minutes they say, "Cup of tea, boys, have a cup of tea." <laughs> he didn't harbour grudges. You know, this is the great thing. Um, I mean, there's a lovely story just to illustrate that. We were abroad, I think, in Portugal when he had a row with Horace Yates. Now, Horace Yates, for the older podcast listeners, was the um, football writer on the Liverpool Daily Post, a very erudite elderly gentleman who smoked a pipe. And he'd written something that Shanks took exception to. So after the game in Portugal, he rounds on Horace. He says, Horace, you've been, I, I won't use the exact words, but you've been writing absolute blankety blank, haven't you? 
And Horace says, well, I wouldn't say that, Bill, and having a smoke of his pipe. You have. It's absolute rubbish. And at that moment, a Portuguese journalist tapped Shanks on the shoulder. He said, well, you bugger off. I'm talking to a friend of mine. (laughs) (laughs) He was giving him down the banks, but he was still a friend. So that, that, that was Bill, you know, he was a, a lovely, love, he was a lovely guy. And despite the, despite his outer image, he was very soft inside. Um, you know, he never fined a single player in all the time he was manager, which is quite incredible. Uh, and he never liked confrontation. When he dropped Ian St. John for the first time, it was at Newcastle. And the Saint found out he wasn't on the team sheet from Jackie Milburn, the great Newcastle player, who was then um, a News of the World journalist. And he came over and he said, Ian, you're not on. He said, what? What? The boss never told me the bugger. And um, he couldn't get hold of Bill till after the game. And he said, come and see me on Monday, son, you know. And then he then eventually had to face Ian St. John, but he wouldn't tell him. He didn't he, he didn't want a confrontation, you see, and he, he didn't like confrontation. And that was Bill. He was a strange mixture, really. But uh, and a, I, I thought he was a wonderful, wonderful guy, you know. John, yes. what? What what made what do you think the secret was with Bill Shankly? What made him so successful? Well, first of all, the the first ingredient is background. Like many of his ilk from Scotland, from hard times in Scotland, particularly the mining communities. There's so many come through as players and managers. That's an ingredient, and I think that teaches you the rights and wrongs of life and uh, you have to strive for things you want. Um, And he always quoted that as his greatest influence. And also um, he was willing to use other people who knew more about certain aspects of the game than he did. Now that might seem silly because people thought Shanks was all knowing, but nobody's all knowing. So when he got to Liverpool, he was so fortunate that Bob Paisley was there because Bob was a wizard with injuries. Bob had taken a, a postal physiotherapy course in, ni- in the 1950s when his own career ended. He was about to become uh, a market man selling vegetables, would you believe, when the chairman of Liverpool TV, Williams, said, would you like to join the backroom staff? So Bob said, yeah, absolutely. And while he, as soon as he joined, he took a postal course in physiotherapy and he became an absolute expert on injuries. He could diagnose injuries off television, unbelievably. So Shanks, who had this psycho thing about injuries anyway, he said, right, that's all your department, Bob. And he would hardly put his head in the treatment room, Bill. Um, and Chris Lawler tells a story. He's on the... He's played about 330 games without missing one. And he gets a little ankle knock on the Saturday. And he's doubtful for the game on the Wednesday at Manchester City. And Chris says, I'm standing on, I'm standing at Melwood. It's freezing, but Shanks wouldn't let us wear tracksuits anyway. I'm just in kit and I'm freezing. And he said, I'm suddenly aware on one side of me is Bob Paisley. And on the other side is Bill Shankly. He said, I've got my ankle strapped. And then Shankly shouts behind my head to Bob, what's wrong with a malingerer, Bob? <laughs> I call him a malingerer because he, he he was doubtful after 330-odd successive appearances. 
this was this was Bill. But uh, so I think that's another aspect that he would leave he would leave expertise to the experts, and he'd be guided by Bob on whether someone was fit or not. Um, and I think he had this ability as he went along. Bill to learn off everybody. He once said to me, you know, John, you can learn off the stupidest of people because even the stupidest of people have something they know that you don't. And I thought, well, how right, you know, when you think about it, it's so true, isn't it? Uh, So I think all in all this amalgam um, of of knowledge and and the ability to, to, to delegate, which is a big thing. And also, of course, his driving personality. Because Ian Callaghan, who played for both Bob and Bill, he said Bob Bob was the great tactician. There's no doubt about that. He was he was a magician tactician, but Bill was the great motivator. You know, a few words from Bill, and you felt you could conquer the world. And um, so I think this amalgam of qualities Bill Shankly had made him so great. John, correct me if I'm wrong. I think you're a Midland. Midlands lad by birth, aren't you? No, I'm not actually. I'm actually from Liverpool, yes. All right. I think people mistake the fact that I'm a Wolves fan. I think right. I was born in the Midlands. But I knew, I knew the, there was a connection there. Yeah, <laughs> Wolves were the like, big they were the big team when I was growing up. And yeah, course, you obviously came into journalism at the right time because as much, you know, as much as Liverpool were on the up, so were Everson. It must have been fantastic times to report on both clubs. It was unbelievable. My first game as a journalist, would you believe, was the European Cup. Um, uh, uh, it was European Cup of Goodison, Everton versus Inter Milan. I mean, it was my first game as a teenager, as a journalist. It was just incredible. And as you say, it was all taking off. The 60s were like the 80s were later. The two clubs were winning all kinds of things. Very, very different managers. You couldn't get more polar opposites than Shanks and Harry Catterick. Um, Harry was very secretive and uh, didn't really like the press, whereas Bill Shankly, if television had been around then, you know, live TV, as it is now, wall to wall, he'd have been on it every night because he just adored talking and speaking about the game and you know, uh, yeah, he would be of the old era in his element today. There's no doubt about that. People like Harry would have had to change their personalities. I think, John, it must have been it must have been really difficult in the early days of you know going across Europe to Eastern Europe. You know, following mainly Liverpool because they they were in Europe consistently. You know, more than Everton, where during the you know the early part. Um, so what was it? What was it actually like covering Liverpool abroad with the facilities you had, and what were you? What was sort of your, your reporting sort of criteria to get stuff back to to into to London or where at Manchester, wherever the the paper was printed after the game? Yeah, that's a very very good point you've raised, Les. There, well, <clears throat> Liverpool and Everton uh, both let the press fly on their charter flight, so we flew with the teams. So that 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 was a big thing, but our main thing, obviously, was to get copy back to uh, the offices in Manchester or London. Um, and this was, of course, aeons before computers. It was the phone. It was the old dog and bone. 
And that was okay in a lot of places in Europe, uh, Western Europe and, and Scandinavia. But once you got behind the Iron Curtain, oh, dear, dear me, it was a nightmare. I mean, the offices would the offices would book your phone with the say we're in Romania with the Romanian authorities for it to be at the uh, appointed seat in the press box. And when you got there, either there was no phone there or when there was, it didn't work. And we've also found phones being there, Les, with a volume control underneath turned to zero. So even if even if a call came through, you wouldn't be able to hear it ring. They would do everything. They would do everything. And I was in Romania and the hotel when uh, one of the um, one of the staff downstairs said, uh, uh, "When you go on the phone, you must keep talking because if you stop, they will cut you off." I said, "Really? Oh yeah." And a couple of the lads had this problem. They just they they were checking things with the copy taker, and when they came back, the line had gone. He didn't get another one out that day, that night. Wow. Um, and I was in the middle of one in Romania when there was a knock at my door, and I thought, right. And it, so I said to the copy taker, just keep talking to yourself. I'm going to open the door. I didn't know who it was. It could have been a crucial bit of information. I opened it. It's Graham Soonis. I said, Graham, what he said, um, will you come to the room 323? I don't know what he's talking about. And I, I know he was rooming with Kenny, you see. So I said, well, I'll come down. But I said, I've got to dash back. So I thought it's going to be a wind up. So I went back. And fortunately, the guy talking to him, I said, OK, Jack, I'm back with you now. Finished my piece. He managed to switch me to the um, to the sports editor. He checked it was okay because I wouldn't get another line out that night. And then I went down to room three two three. I thought, now this will be. I'll, I'll be the fall guy. So I knocked on the door, and Graham said, "Come in, John." He said, "Tell him what you just said to me." Oh, I bought a hairdryer. I said, "Graham, he wants to borrow your hairdryer." He couldn't <laughs> understand what Kenny was saying to him. And this is this is Glasgow. Rooming with Edinburgh, you see, they can't understand each other. <laughs> so I said to them both, I said, we'll have to teach you both English. <laughs> yeah, but, but, it, but they really were. And when Liverpool played Spartak Moscow in Moscow, hardly any of us got a line through on the phones. So my colleague, David Miller, knew a hotel in the centre of Moscow, which had a bank of telephones. So he said, right. And the driver who was told to drive us to the airport, we said, forget that, you must go to this hotel. So this hotel had about 15 British press men descending on it. And the guy behind the desk was a little bit unsure. So we started throwing Russian money at him. Well, we we could have done anything after that. And we just picked up a phone, dialed straight through, copy, everything went. It was great. We had a little bit of time on our side because... We had a little bit of the the, the 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 time in Moscow was later than the time in in England, so we got our stuff through. But that was the sort of thing, Les, we had to do. And the other thing with foreign trips behind the Iron Curtain, they always had a minder on us, and we knew them who the minder was because they all spoke English with an American accent. So it's like from central casting, you know, the spies <laughs> are sent to this school where they all speak American English. Some of them. Some of them they put on us were women. And these women, mind us, if you went to the gents, they'd follow you in there and stand there while you had a pee to make sure you weren't <laughs> doing anything you shouldn't have been doing. And it's unbelievable. Unbelievable, Les. But there we are. There we are. John, John, there was a big John. mistrust of um, 
I think I've read from both Shankly's book and Paisley that there was a big mistrust. They wouldn't eat anything unless it was taken over themselves, would they? they wouldn't that, that is absolutely right. That's a, few, a huge factor. They um, they did take their own food with them, actually, um, uh, because, in fact, Bob Paisley um, was very aware of this. He said, um, they'll bloody try to poison us if they can, so we'll have to get, <laughs> get their own food there. This is to Peter. Get them all on there, Peter. And, yeah. um, and um uh, it got to the point, actually, where Peter appointed two Dublin hoteliers to come with us um, and they would taste the food, not not just behind the Iron Curtain, wherever we went. These two hoteliers, Alan, Alan Glynn and John Glynn, not related, one rang the Burlington Hotel, the other rang Jory's Hotel, both in Dublin, superb hotels, and they would go into the kitchens tell the, the cooks what the team wanted and they taste the food before it was served to the team. And that's, that's the pains that Liverpool used to go to, to, um, to make sure nobody got ill. I'm afraid in Trabzon, um, it didn't work very well at all because half the party was sick. Um, the, only, the only person who really was well was Ray Clements and he had taken about 20 tons of Cadbury's chocolate with him and that's all he would eat on the whole trip but everyone was sick virtually everybody and then early in the early hours of the morning we were awakened by the the chanting at the mosque so not only were people ill but they hardly got any sleep either so to lose narrowly as they did was a tribute to Liverpool really it was a and we got I was I was doing a radio uh, broadcast with Elton Wellsby from Trabzon, as well as doing the Express. And we got, uh, and the report, the commentary got as far as Ankara and didn't even get to Britain. So there you are. So it was a, one of those trips. But there we are. It happened. John, do you know in, 19, in 1965 when we won the, the FA Cup for the first yeah. time, <laughs> was you was you was you down with the club at the time when we won? That was that was when I first you know started watching Liverpool, at, you know 1965, and I remember us winning the cup and, and going out on the on Park Road afterwards. What was it? What was it like? I believe Park Road was wild, wasn't it? Oh, unbelievable! <laughs> all the pubs, all the people were out. I hope you left it as you found it. <laughs> no, I was I was only a boy. I was only ten. Yeah, Do you know. Yeah, I, sorry, go on. Yeah, but but you know, going through and you know the the significance of winning the FA Cup for the first yeah. ever time. Oh yes, yes. What was it like being involved in in the squad? You know, with the squad. Well, I I, I went. I didn't go down with the squad for that, but I was there to cover it. And then yeah. I went to the banquet afterwards in London, and there was a wonderful air of accomplishment because for for younger listeners listening to this now, the FA Cup then was massively bigger than it is now. It's one of the hobby horses of mine, the way the FA Cup's been so contemptuously treated. It, it's been so downgraded by, I'm afraid, managers who used it to try out rotation and it's lost all its impetus. It's so sad. I mean, it's the oldest competition in the world, the oldest football competition. And uh, I'm just sad the way it's, it, it's, it's been derided now. But then it was huge and Liverpool had been in existence for 73 years and never won it. And um, hopes were high. They'd been there in 1950 against Arsenal when Billy Little got kicked all over the field by a guy called Alex Forbes. 
and he was so badly hurt, Billy, that within hours of the final whistle, he couldn't even put his jacket on. His arms wouldn't move. And, of course, he was the key man, Billy. So 65 was a massive, uh, a massive game for Liverpool. Shankly took the team to watch Ken Dodd uh, the night before, and they all had to leave because Doddy was still on. And uh, <laughs> Shank said, we'll have to go, boys. Because he'll be on till breakfast time. So they all went back to the hotel. But he invited Tarbuck into the dressing room before the match. Uh, and um, But he did a great thing, Shanks. Before the game, he went on, the, uh, he went on BBC um, TV uh, with Joe Harvey, the Newcastle manager. And he ran rings around Joe. And he says, Joe, you're looking worried, Joe. Joe, you're looking worried because you've got to face my team. And honestly, I thought, well, I think Newcastle could be beaten before they're... Uh, sorry, sorry, not uh, Don Revy I'm talking about in, in 65. He went on there and uh, he played mind games with Don Revy. And uh, mind you, Leeds were some team and it was some game. The best goal of the game was Billy Bremner's. But um, yeah, I mean, to win that game against Leeds was... Uh, was just incredible. And Shanks did the same thing in 74 when they played Newcastle. And I just talked about Joe Harvey when he did played mind games with him. He was great at playing mind games, Bill, quite psychologically. You know, he, he had a great sense of psychology because that's where his motivational factors came from, you know. But yeah, 65, because when they got back, um, it was a, the, the crowd was as big as the one who greeted the Beatles when they came back from the USA. I mean, it was just unbelievable. Um, it, and then what a weekend it was because that was the, they came back on the Sunday and then on the Tuesday into Milan in the semi-final of the European Cup. So those few days were just, just incredible. And when the Liverpool coach arrived at Anfield for the game against Inter Milan, there was nobody about. Ron Yates stood up and says, there's nobody here. The streets are empty. What had happened was, it's only when they got off the bus, they found that the ground had been filled two hours before kickoff and they'd closed the gates. Everyone was inside. It was just, um, everyone wanted to see that game. And it's still, to me, although talk about St. Etienne, I was there, Barcelona more recently. To me, that was the greatest atmosphere, the Inter Milan game I've ever known as Anfield. Because it was, they were the world and European champions, and Liverpool beat them three one. You know, it was quite in, quite incredible. John, then, um, sorry, go on. I was just going to say just a couple of things there that you, you've mentioned. Like, a, you just tell some of the younger listeners about, the, you know, the immense part that Jerry Byrne played oh. in winning, you know, the FA Cup against Leeds. And yeah. secondly, and then following that, if you could t- explain to again to our maybe some of our younger listeners about what happened in the second leg against Inter. Um, yeah. You know, and how Shanks reacted to that. Yes. Well, Jerry Byrne first. I mean, years later, after Bill had retired, Bill Shankly, I asked him, what, what was the one player you would single out? And he picked out Jerry Byrne. And he said, what he did in 65, he should have got all the medals himself. Nobody else should have got a medal. He should have got all of them. Because, as he said, in the sixth minute, he's fouled by Bobby Collins. 
not only does he get a bad leg injury, but he gets a fractured collarbone. Now, this is where this is where Bob Paisley came into his own. Bob went running on and he felt his collarbone and Bob knew right away it's fractured. And he said, I said, oh, my leg's killing me, Bob. And Bob, he said, well, there's nothing broken, Jerry. Now, listen, you're not to let Leeds know anything about this. Just try to act normally. I know you'll be in a lot of pain. And Jerry says, don't worry, don't worry, Bob, I'll do my best. Well, <clears throat> he played the rest of the 90 minutes and the whole of extra time and set up one of the goals with a fractured collarbone and an injured leg. <clears throat> Excuse me, I'll just take a drink of water and I'll continue this story after the glob of water. When, um, when the game was over and they got back to the dressing room, the Wembley doctor said, um, oh, that's right. They said, we'll have to send Jerry to hospital for an X-ray. And the Wembley doctor, yeah, yeah. He said he, he strained it. And Bob says, strained it? No, that's shank. Strained it, he said. He's got a bloody fractured collarbone, doctor. <laughs> no, he hasn't. Of course, who was right when they had the X-ray? Bob Paisley was right. And he, had the, and he, came, um, he came home on the train with his arm in a sling. And... Um, Ian Callaghan was with him and they put a notice up. It was one of the compartment trains and they put a notice up on the window of the compartment saying, thank you everyone for, because we're fans on board. Thank you everyone for asking, but Jerry Byrne is doing very well and thanks you all for the good wishes. And they put this as a notice on the window of the train. And um, it was just incredible. But Jerry was like that. He was, uh, he was un an uncomplaining hard player but as well as being a hard player he was a very very good player and shanks used to get angry if you called him just a hard player because he was terrific and then getting back to inter milan les yeah yeah in the second leg um first of all they're at a hotel on lake como not on lake como but you know what i mean on the shores of lake como and um the first night they were there, the bells in the church kept ringing. So Shank says, Bob, we're going to have to get the bells stopped. So Bill said, you can you go get the bells. Aye, let's go and see them. So they went to the church and knocked on the door, Shanks and Bob. And the Monsignor comes out and Shank says, hello, I'm Bill Shankly and I'm with Liverpool. And your bells are keeping my players awake. He said, well, they have been going for hundreds of years. We cannot stop them. He said, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll send Bob up with some bandages and he can wrap them around the bells. So Bob said, you think I'm going up there, Bill? You can think again. So the bells had to continue. So they, didn't, they didn't quieten the bells down. Uh, but anyway, we get to the game. The press in Italy is full. Liverpool are on drugs. Liverpool are cheats. This is what met Liverpool. Um, and, of course, every decision uh, was wrong by the referee. And um, as, as the referee walked off the pitch, Tommy Smith came up and kicked him up the backside with a hefty boot. And I think if you get kicked by an angry Tommy Smith, you'd know about it. This referee just kept on walking. He didn't even look around. And Bill himself said to me, I saw money being handed over after the game. And he said, um, he's the one, he said to me, he's the one man who haunts me, that referee. 
dreadful there. We, we didn't lose to a football team. We lost to bribery, which they did. And it was down to the Sunday Times, Brian Glanville, um, who um, they uncovered um, this trail of uh, corruption, which went right through to the 1970s when Derby County were treated equally and they, they lost through corruption as well. Brian Clough's Derby County. So it was it was dreadful. But that that went on a lot uh, in football in the 60s, I'm afraid. John, yeah, which, you, um, I was just going to say, as well as obviously Liverpool, Everson, I presume mm. you covered the World Cup in 66, did you? I, yes, I did. Yes, I did. Yeah. yeah. So that's, when I, that's when I really first got into football. I vaguely remember the Dortmund... The Borussia Dortmund game up in Glasgow, we were watching that. Oh, yeah. Game. The Cup Winners' <laughs> Cup final, yeah. So, Union, you see. And he actually went to a couple of the games of Goodison. and I think he went to a Bul Bulgaria, and I think he went to the South Korea, uh, the North Korea no, game. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I was at that. That was, um, yeah. that's one of my great memories, that Eusebio. Yeah. I mean, if ever there's been a one man show, that was it. Now, again, <laughs> He crops up all the time. There's a Shankly story about that because Shanks got in posing as a TV uh, employee and he was he was walking around the dressing room corridors and he he said, he said after the game, he said, did you see them, John? He said, uh, cheating bastards. I said, why? He said, you know what they did, the North Koreans? I said, no, Bill. He said, they changed every player at half time except... <laughs> Except the goalkeeper, and he's too big that to I recognise that. They changed a lot. He says, but they couldn't, they, it didn't do him any good because you saw, you Sabio saw them off. Oh, he was livid, Bill, about it. Yeah, yeah. But he, <laughs> yeah, Bill, you can't keep him down. But yeah, that was some game. And then, of course, it was very sad for Pelly because my abiding image of, Pelly was kicked out of it and he walked off with a raincoat round his shoulders and that's the last time we saw him play competitively in, in England um, but it was, it was against a... Hungary that young wasn't it yes that's right yeah yeah, yeah. I'll tell yeah. you what John it's really it's really it's, it makes me laugh sometimes you know when you're watching like the old films of the 1966 World Cup yes and you, see, you, know, you see a physio drawn on nowadays and you've got all the sorts of paraphernalia in the bags, and there's two of them right yeah. in 1966. I think again, it was a I think it was Pele goes down, and the Brazilian physio walk runs on, he's got a water bottle full of cold water, that, and yeah. that, that was his tools of his trade. I know it was quite amazing, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it was very primitive, wasn't it? Um, very, very primitive. I remember. Um, Liverpool got this uh, new German machine and it was to treat muscles, muscle injuries. And it was installed in the treatment room. And of course, Shanks wouldn't go in the treatment room, but he was told it had arrived. So they used Jimmy Melia as the guinea pig and they put him on the flatbed. And then Shanks walks in and he says, Bob, is the machine on? He said, well, I've tried to switch it on, Bill, and the bloody thing won't go on. Where's the instructions, says Bill. He said, that Bob says, they're all in German. Shank says, you were in the war, you can speak German. He said, I can't speak bloody German. So with that, Shanks kicks the plug. And what had happened, they'd not connected. 
Shanks kicked him and Jimmy's leg goes about six foot in the air, <laughs> screaming in pain, and it put him out for an extra fortnight. <laughs> Shanks turns around and said, It's on now, Bob. And he used to boast to us, we've got this machine, you know, that whole that treats muscles. So they'll, they'll be back quicker than they would normally be. But he wouldn't go anywhere near it or them. He used to stay well out of the treatment room. That was Bob's domain. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. It's a pity, John, we didn't have it, have it nowadays. I mean, it might have gotten abdicated a fit a few more times. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, yeah, possibly, yeah, sure, yeah. Any, anyway, yeah. John, just moving on a little bit. In, <clears throat> we played Ajax, didn't we? And that was the first time Johan Cruyff had come to the, the attention of young yes. Maybe the football and public at this very point. much so, yeah. Mm. And so were you? Were you at that? Wasn't it played? Wasn't the away game play, played in the fog? Oh yeah, total fog, total fog. I, I wasn't at that game, but I, I, I remember watching it on television highlights. Um, in fact, I was I was on the express desk in Manchester that night, and um, it was five one, wasn't it? And yeah. um, and the phone rang about half past 11 at night. And uh, I picked it up and says, hello, Express Sport. And this bloke says, uh, he said, oh, hello. He said, I just want to tell you. He said, it's true now. Ajax does kill 99% of all known germs. He was an Everton fan <laughs> crowing about it. <laughs> Never forget that. We actually use it in the paper as a joke next day. But but during that game, Shanks ran on in the fog, you know. He ran on. Oh, he ran on. Bobby Graham, Bobby Graham, he said, I was walking there, walking to take my position, and I see this figure coming towards me in the fog, and I realised, bloody hell, didn't say bloody hell. He says, bloody hell, it's the boss. And he says, son, you don't need to attack. Keep defend we've got a home leg to come yet you know um he says we'll beat them then but of course they they conceded goal after goal and it was it was an impossible job but um yeah and i don't know how the pressmen who were there covered the game because you you couldn't see from the press box you couldn't even see the first touch line let alone so i don't know i don't know i have no idea how they covered that game i'm glad i didn't have to because it would have been impossible i think john as it as a sort of local reporter from just talking about the Liverpool side now, mm-hmm. who's the first player that you can remember or reporting on that, that Liverpool were about to sign? Liverpool were about to sign. Um, yeah. Well, Ian St. John was one of the first. Um, and I saw his debut um, against Everton at Goodison. Um, he was a tremendous buy. He was, they, they put him up at a hotel in... Uh, in town and he travelled up by taxi to play in the Liverpool Senior Cup final against Everton. This was a competition devised so that the two teams would play each other because they were in different divisions. So unless they were drawn in the cup, they didn't play each other. So they played this at Goodison this particular season uh, in May, in the May. And um, Ian came up in the taxi to Goodison, got out uh, was about to go into the player's entrance and the commissioner said, you can't come in here, son. He says, but I'm a player. He said, oh, they all say that, bugger off. And told him to bugger off. And it was only that Alex Scott, one of his 
compatriots, the Everton player, spotted him and said, hey, Jack, to the commissioner, let him in, that's Ian St John. He's playing for Liverpool. Oh, come on, you better come in then. And of course, Ian scored a hat-trick against Brian LeBone that night. And even though Liverpool lost, Liverpool fans went on so happy that they'd seen in Ian a centre-forward who was great in the air, was combative, he, he he was everything Liverpool fans wanted their centre-forward to be. He wasn't the biggest of guys, but what a centre-forward he was. And then, of course, when he linked up with Roger, it was a dream combination, wasn't it? So he would be the first one I, I remember, really, coming to the club. Did, um, so in 72-73, in you know, Liverpool win the, win the sort of first European Sofian League double, and it was Shanks's first. First and only European trophy as Liverpool manager. What do you remember about that? You know that that European, you know, UEFA Cup final against Borussia Mönchengladbach, and you know Liverpool winning the league with his new team. How proud was Shanks often? Because when I remember back, when I remember back, it yeah. took really a defeat, didn't it, against Watford in yes. the FA Cup yeah. to sort of reluctantly break up. You know. The 60s team that had achieved so much and he loved so much. Yes. And to build his new team. It was February 1970. They lost at Watford in the sixth round. And that was the that was the watershed. But really, if truth be told, Bob not sorry, Bill was a little bit too loyal to the team. It should have started to be not broken up, but there should have been new blood just drafted in here and there before that, I think. He did let it go on too long. And in fact, years later, Bob Paisley said he learned from that, that he said, once that player goes off the top, once it's gone just over the peak, it's time to get rid. It's the only thing to do. It's not fair to them or you to keep them. And he said, I learned that from Bill. So that was very interesting from Bob. Um, Yeah, that that was the start of the new team. Uh, Because quite a few of them were already there. You know, Clements was there. Emlyn Hughes was there. Uh, Larry Lloyd, I think, was there too. So they'd just not been able to get in the team. But after that, they were they were in the team. And um, and then, of course, uh, Hall and Highway emerged, the graduates. Uh, Keegan was signed in 70. Uh, he was signed in, he'd been signed in 71, of course. So, um, yeah, it, it was, so as you say, when they won that league and UEFA Cup double, it was a great uh, a great moment for Bill, especially as they'd gone from 66 to 73 without a single trophy. You know, people forget that. It's a long time for Liverpool to go without a trophy, although they qualified for Europe every single season. So they had that amazing European run and European experience. But the Gladback game, of course, on the first night, it was postponed because of a waterlogged pitch. And they found out it was caused, strange enough, by a, how, how they got together, I don't know, but a, a massive amount of uh, empty cigarette packets had blocked a drain and stopped the water going off the pitch. Um, it was one of those mysteries. So, um, and then, of course, when they did, um, when they did play, um, it was nip and tuck as it was in the second leg. And the second leg was, was played in fierce weather as well. Uh, and it looked as if they weren't going to do it, but they came through. Liverpool's strength told in the end. A great goalkeeping by Ray Clements. And, um, yeah, I think Shanks was very, very, 
very proud of that. And you know, I I, I think it possibly it possibly started him to think about his future because a year later he packed up, you know, after they won the FA Cup in 74. So, um, well, that, that was that was just an amazing event. Still yeah, is to me. I was going to ask you about that. When when Shankly retired, I mean, I was still in school and that, and it was a shock to us all. You're making me feel <laughs> old. <here. laughs> well, it was, secondary, it was secondary school. It wasn't oh, God, well, that's okay. Say, say it was um, late university for some But, I mean, we were in a state of shock, all the fans yeah. were. Did you have? I was just wondering what the opinion of like the national journalists were. Did you think Bob Paisley was up to the job, or you probably thought he, you know, knowing him so well, you you probably were confident in what he could do. But I just wondered if what the nationals thought. Did they think he could carry on the mantle from? Shanky? Well, to, to be to be brutally honest, a lot of the national sports writers who weren't on Merseyside very often didn't really know Bob. They didn't know him because Bob. Bob was not a man who hogged the limelight. He, he came up with a lovely quote once. He said, you see, Bill, Bill, Bill Shanks, like what he does, what he puts steel tips on his shoes so he can hear him coming. Whereas me, I'll have the carpet slippers. And that was the difference. <laughs> lovely, lovely quote. That was the difference in the two men. So and, and Bob was very retiring. He didn't want the limelight. He, he did his job to the best of his ability. And that was it. But we knew we knew just how good he was. Um, and that, you know, I'm sure Shanks was delighted to have had him all those years. I still say, well, well despite all the players he signed, Bill Shankly, the best decision he ever took was when he arrived in December 59, was to keep the entire backroom team, because that included Paisley, Fagan, um, you know, all the people who would later form the boot room, which Joe and Bob began. Um, and, you know, it, it formed the, it was a dynasty just by that very decision. He was, Shanks was creating a dynasty. So as I say, Bob was so equipped to do the job. We knew that, but we knew he didn't want it. We knew he didn't want it. We wanted him to have it, but he didn't want it. And Peter Robinson and John Smith, admitted they went down on bended knee time after time and they were on the point of giving up and they tried one more time and Bob said well I'll tell you what I'll do I'll take it till you get a proper manager <laughs> that's what he said and on his on his first team talk Emlyn Hughes told us this on his first team talk he said right I'm only here till the club get a proper manager and Emily came and told us this. I said, well, it's later on, some proper manager, 19 trophies in nine seasons. It's not bad for a non-proper manager, is it? <laughs> he had he had such a such a knack, didn't he, of, of spotting of spotting a, a player who would fit in to his system. Yes. You know, like when when you think that you know <laughs> you know one of the one of the great Liverpool players, if you like, of and none of us could have seen this, you know, Ray Kennedy oh. you know, from a, from a, a centre forward, you know, to the left side of midfield and and not only to be one of Liverpool's greatest ever players, but during the time he played there, he was probably one of the best midfield players in Europe, if not the world. And yet Bob sort of had that vision to be able to move him there, you know, and and I, I say it's just and you know, and, and then changing the system to 
you know, from 4-3-3 to 4-4-2, using Kevin Keegan sometimes, especially in European games, to drop off and help the midfield, you yeah. know, playing Europe. And, and as I say, I just think, you know, sometimes I think, you know, to a lot of people, you know, he's very underrated as a manager, but, but I, you know, you know him better than any of us. Could you just sort of, you know, uh, sort of fill in us all a bit about, and a little bit more knowledge about how good he was, especially to the younger people? Yeah, well, it would take about 20 podcasts, Les, to do full justice to Bob Paisley. But he um, he had his little homilies, you know, his voice. He used to, and um, he, he was he was beguiling in many ways. For, I think the players who arrived had a bit of a job, first of all, understanding what he what he was saying. But, I mean, they said the impossible conversation was Bob Paisley talking to Kenny Dalglish, you know, because they couldn't understand each other, except on the football pitch. Now, Bob, um, he, he, he once, he had a wonderful ability to recognise talent and how it could be used. Tommy Smith spent a certain time on the backroom staff when he finished playing, not for very long, but in that time, he used to go with Bob to matches to watch the opposition to come. And he came back and he he was just in disbelief. He said, I can't believe Bob. He said, it's something I never knew he had. But I sat with him at these games and at half time, he'd give you a potted history about the performance of every opposition player on the field. He's uh, right on his left, but not too good on his right. And the, the number five, like he's bad in there, and he'd have them all sussed out. And it was just un- unbelievable. Uh, so that was clearly a great advantage to uh, have a proper dossier. Not that he gave dossiers, he didn't. But he'd um, he'd shout across the dressing room, just watch the number three. He's got a he's got a he hits a good long one. That means the the left back hits a good long pass, you know. And the players <laughs> have got to pick this up on the special Paisley antenna, you know. But um, Ray Kennedy was, as you you said it all, the classic example. I mean, Ray came as the front running. A championship winning double act with John Radford. He was following Ronnie Whelan, of course, a class act, a hell of a job to follow. And uh, he played a few games in the reserves with Joe Fagan. And he'd been, he once at times drifted to the left. And Joe said, I'll tell you what, boss, he said, he's doing all right there, that Ray fella on the. So Bob said, Yeah, he will. So Bob threw him in and well. Alan Hansen said it's the greatest switch of position he's ever seen at any club, any time. And it, it was, it was just unbelievable. When there were ever European games and we used to go and meet the opposition and speak to the opposition coach, the first thing the foreign coach would say, uh, tell us, gentlemen, is Ray Kennedy playing? And we'd say, yeah. oh, they were frightened of him. He was brilliant, absolutely, utterly brilliant. Um, and that was down to Bob. Also, you talk about the ability to spot talent. Um, Bob once said to me, he said, he said, you know, they're like racehorses. I said, oh, well, Bob, the players, like, they're, right, they're like the racehorse. Because Bob was a big racing man. He used to go up in the summer to Frankie Durr's uh, stables in Yorkshire. And he'd say, you'd see them all there. You'd see, you'd see the one who likes the sun on his back. That's the Fairclough fella. And then the one will go through the mud. That's the Ray Kennedy. He'll go through the mud. And he likened players to horses. Anyway, he said, so he said, 
it's not just getting the two most expensive players together. It's like, you'll get the gifted one, but then you need the one who's going to do the running. It's like when they send the horses to the races. I said, what's that? He said, well, they put a thoroughbred in the box that, that he's going to race, but they put a donkey in with him. Not two thoroughbreds, but a donkey with the thoroughbred. And that's what you do in football. I said, bloody hell. Yeah, you hope you're not calling Jimmy Case a donkey. <laughs> but no, he was saying that you need, you need the Jimmy Cases as well as the Dalglishes. I know what he meant. The players would run and run for you, would do the hard work. Um, and this was his ethic. And it was just uncanny. Um, and as you say, he was so flexible, far more flexible tactically than Bill ever was. Because as you say, Keegan would come back in midfield and Steve Highway would suddenly find himself going down the middle. And he loved it. He loved playing in Europe because he said the boss would often play me down the middle. Uh, and in fact, he played down the middle for a long time in Rome in 77, if you remember. Mm. Uh, so this was... Um, his his gifts were incredible. I mean, if you ask Bob, he couldn't he couldn't get them out in a sentence because he didn't do. We call Bob we call Bob the great trainer because he never finished sentences. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he just he would tail off. It's it, 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 you know. But oh dear me, and he was so funny as well. I mean, Shanks was outrageously funny, but Bob was. Bob was funny in a very different way. He'd come up with some lovely lines. Um, when when they signed Avi Cohen, we were in his office on the Friday talking about the following day's match. Avi Cohen's just signed and Bob's phone rang. And it was the Jewish Chronicle in Manchester. He picks it up and says, hello? Uh, hello, Mr. Paisley. It's the Jewish Chronicle in Manchester. Want to know from you, is Avi Cohen... Orthodox, orthodox, what full back midfield? What do you mean? <laughs> if he's orthodox, Mr. Paisley, he cannot play on a Saturday. And Bob said, Forgot half a dozen like that already. <laughs> 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 wonderful line, absolutely wonderful line. No, he was, he was a great man, Bob. He was, he was uncanny, absolutely uncanny. And you don't win that. I mean. That's the greatest run of success, trophies per season, even a line for Alex Ferguson in the history of English football. 19 trophies, nine seasons. It's unbelievable. I think Les alluded, John, before about how good he was, how good he was and how he wasn't sort of, he was never mentioned as, as the great, to win three European Cups. Well, yes, and, exactly. And just, even now, you know, the... When you talk about the great Ancelotti's, I think Ancelotti's won four now. But now, yes, he's just gone Bob, past Bob. Yeah, yeah. Just, just to be met up there, and as you said, he was so tactically aware in Europe. He yes. was miles ahead of everybody else. We had Graham Sooners on the other week, Les, didn't we? Yes, well, there you are. Um, he'll, he'll he, he, was, he was he was explaining to us about the simplicity of how Liverpool worked. Jordan, yeah. the Bob Paisley's era. Yes. You know, well, I, I I often think, you know, when when now when when you look at managers and and they're lined up as the greats, he's never put up there. But but for me, he's well, he right up be, there. He, he should because he was and is. You know, he's yeah. he's one of the greatest managers of all time, and he has the greatest record of any manager in English football. Nobody's done. Nobody's won that that average trophy per season as Bob. It, it's quite incredible. incredible. Yeah, it John, is. John, do you actually yeah. think that um, 
you know, winning the league in 76 was probably the catalyst for Bob because if he hadn't won anything that season, oh, yes, yeah, it would have been two years with that Liverpool not winning the trophy, and then all the, the speculation would have, would have started that you know, he's not a shank, you just wonder how long he would have gone on, but that just seemed to be the catalyst. And, and as they say, the rest is history. Well, without a doubt, I mean, there are already um, letters, you'll remember this, I'm sure, the old Pink Echo and the fans writing letters in. There are already letters uh, appearing, not many, but one or two saying, not so sure about Bob Paisley. Uh, We haven't won anything now since he took over. Uh, And I thought, oh, well, yes. So that 1976 win was crucial for Bob. Absolutely. Well, it was crucial. It had he had to win that, otherwise, or win a trophy that season because uh, there were already the snipers had already begun. Because to follow Shankly was um, it was the mission impossible, really, wasn't it? Mm, just it just just like Kenny following, you know, Kevin Keegan could never be replaced. So they said Shanks could never be replaced. Well, Liverpool replaced both of them and brilliantly as well. Yes. So, yeah, the Knights of Wolves. Sorry, yeah. Pete. Sure. Yeah, I was going to say, how do you think the two great men would have um, would take to the, the modern day with all the social media and, and people wanting instant success? How do you think you'd have taken to that? I think very, very, yeah, very, very differently. Shanks yeah. would have been in his element. Bob would have hated it, hated it, <laughs> uh, because he didn't. He just, he was the quiet man. He didn't like, I don't want fuss. And also, he didn't like, he wouldn't uh, talk to the media right after a match. If he found out ITV were there, he'd put his BBC tie on. <laughs> and, and if BBC were there, he'd put his out because they give them ties, you know, and so they wouldn't go. It was like it was like Dracula and the cross, you know, to keep them away. But, but he said, he said, you, you finished a game and your mind's in a bloody frenzy and somebody comes and sticks a mic in front of you and you say the most stupid things. No, I'm not doing it. I mean, the, he couldn't stop the players. They still spoke, but um, he didn't. We had to ring Bob on a Sunday and get his considered view, which often fell to me, which was great. Um, so, um, yeah, they would they would have reacted very, very differently. Also, agents. Agents were not... See, Shanks couldn't handle agents, really, whereas Bob could. That was the difference in another way. Shanks... Um, you know, I mean, if someone had gone in to Bill and said, uh, and he'd, he'd offer them a an extended contract, they said, I'm going to have to ring my agent. He'd have got a gun out the drawer, shot the player, then shot the agent. You know, he, <laughs> he, he, he couldn't, he couldn't handle that. What do you mean? You, you, you don't, you just say yes. You don't, you don't hesitate. You know, no, he, he wouldn't. Whereas Bob, Bob was... Bob predicted a lot of what's happening now about clubs playing friendlies thousands of miles away in, in the other side of the world, which was unknown when he was managed. He said, that'll happen and there'll be great sponsorship, he used to say. So Bob was more modern than Bill was, actually. Um, and he he was um, he did predict a lot of that's come to pass now. Um, yeah. Yeah. Another, another quick question, John. We haven't mentioned him as yet. Joe Fagan. Oh. He came over as quite a quite a quiet, unassuming guy, but I, I guess he had a ruthless streak in him as well to, to manage, you know, to manage Liverpool. 
Yes, he did have a ruthless streak. Um, of, he, he was the man that um, both Bill and Bob would let rip if uh, they wanted someone to um, put what's now called a hairdryer treatment, you know. I, re I remember in at Christmas 1981, Liverpool were 12th in the table. And it wasn't Bob Paisley who went in, it was Joe. And Joe got them all together. And he said, what do you think your lot are doing? And he'd have a fag, we've got smoking Joe. What do you think you're doing, you lot? You, Del Glish, you, you, just scored, you should have scored twice as many goals. And soonest, you're not winning your tackles like you should do. If we go on like this, none of us will have a job. And he, Bruce Grobbler gave us a, a verbal countdown of what went on because he'd made a mistake. I think they played, they lost to Manchester City on Boxing Day, didn't they? And Bruce had made an error and he got down the banks as well. But it was Joe who, um, who, who was deputed to do that. And I remember Tommy Smith telling me a story that he, um, when Tommy was an apprentice, he said, I didn't want to brush the brush the dressing room. So he said, I was walking out one day and Joe said, excuse me, lad. And I turned around and Joe said, uh, where are you going? He said, I'm going home, Joe. No, you're not. Pick up that brush and brush that dressing room. And he said, I was petrified. Tommy Smith, I was petrified of Joe. So yeah, he, um, he, uh, he, he had that ability to make players react. And, um, and again, you see, it's the ability at Liverpool had Bob and Bill of knowing who to delegate to, the right person in the right circumstance, rather than doing it themselves. And it wasn't through cowardice, but they didn't have the perhaps the ability that Joe had. They were frightened of Joe. Simple as that, you know. And as a manager, he was very um he was very clever too, Joe. He was um very because he'd had a great school, hadn't he, with Bill and Bob. Uh, and, and helped a lot towards their success too. So, um, yeah, uh, Joe was, uh, the, the great tragedy of Joe was he told them in advance that, you know, he, he took the job on at a little bit of an advanced age and he'd done two seasons. So he told them a couple of months before the end of the 84, 85 season that that was it. He was uh, packing up and they said, okay, we understand that. And then of course, he had the terrible, tragic misfortune of being at Heysel, his last match, when the, the whole thing was just just ghastly, absolutely dreadful. A terrible, terrible night. And I sat behind Joe and his wife, Lil, coming back on the plane, and they were both crying all the way home. It was just awful, just awful. I really felt, we all felt for Joe, more than anybody, obviously, apart from the victims' families, but within the Liverpool squad, Joe was desperately hurt by it, that this was this was his farewell game and it had gone so badly wrong. Yeah. John, just turning the clock back a little bit to, to Rome and 1977, yeah. that must have been one hell of a season to, to, <clears throat> to have covered Liverpool uh, as yes. in, in You know, lifting all big ears for the first time after losing to Manchester United in the final. And then also, just a couple of things to follow on, also <laughs> Kevin Keegan's last game. Yes. And then going on from that, the signing of Kenny. What can you tell us about all those sorts of major pieces in Liverpool's history? 
Oh, just just a little question, Les. Just a gentle little <laughs> question. Yeah, thank you for that, Les. Yeah. Um, well, it was an amazing season, and um, there was one word that if you uttered it within the portals of Bob Paisley's office, you'd get down the banks, and that word was treble. I don't want to hear that so-and-so, so-and-so word around this club. And he was dead right, because the people were talking about it for months before, and, of course, at, at Wembley, it went anyway against Man U. But the Man U defeat... And a lot of the players who are listening to this, who are taking part then, will agree with me. The fact that they lost to Man U meant that they beat Mönchengladbach. It, was, it happened in the bath afterwards. Emily News said we were in the bath. Ray Clements jumped in and said, right, lads, we're going to win the European Cup. And at that moment, we all knew we would. And the other great thing, there was a... Um, there was a charter train to take us back, the team and the press and directors, from Watford. Strange it should be Watford, because it was a, a junction in Shankly's career, wasn't it? But it was Watford Station. And the train was delayed, and we were all on the platform at Watford. And a few of the lads had got beer from... There was a club just off the off the station, uh, and they brought beer. We're drinking beer. And, and we got on the... We got finally got on the train... And they had um, they used they were using a sugar cube battle because we had coffee and they were throwing sugar cubes at each other, and it was all light hearted. And by the time we didn't get back to Lime Street till ten past midnight, and by then I think they'd all forgotten they'd lost to Manchester United, and it was all about Wednesday in Rome. And Bob Paisley said, he said, I got home that, that early morning there. And he said, I did two things. He said, I poured myself a whiskey and I picked the team for Rome. And one of the <laughs> things he did, he'd left Ian Callaghan out at Wembley. And on the Monday, uh, Callie said, I'm running along at Melwood. And suddenly and this figure running beside me. And the voice says, do you want to play on Wednesday? He said, of course I do. He said, right, you're playing, then ran away. <laughs> <laughs> so that was how that's how Cali was told he was back in the team for Rome. And he was the first player, of course, ever to play for Liverpool in the second division to go on and win a European Cup winners medal, which is a hell of a record. So how, how did you how did you hear about the Kenny signing then, John? How did I hear about the Kenny signing? I um I got a call um from a colleague, a contact in Scotland. What had happened was um, John Smith and Peter Robinson had gone up to Scotland posing as the Smith brothers and they booked into a hotel not far out of Glasgow. <laughs> the guy behind the desk says, if you come to sign Dalglish, Mr. Robinson, they recognise them right away. So it was out and I got a phone call to say they're in Scotland signing Kenny. Uh, and it was a big week because it was the week Elvis died as well, by the way, August 1977. And um, uh, the next thing I knew they'd signed him, the next thing, my phone goes at home. I then lived in Altrincham. And a voice says, hello, uh, is that John Keith? I said, yeah. He said, it's Kenny Dalglish. I said, oh, I've never spoken to him. I said, hello, Kenny. He said, do you know you're doing a column with me? I said, I didn't. No, I didn't. He said, yeah. All this season coming, I said, oh, right. He said, I've just met your editor. Oh, I said, well, I, but I've told him, he said, I'm not being controversial. I said, don't take it out of John. I'm not saying silly things. I said, okay, Kenny, that's fine. Well, he was true to his word. It was, he didn't, 
he didn't go into controversy, Kenny. He just said it as it was. So that, that was my meeting with uh, Kenny knowing he'd signed. So it all happened in the same night. And what a signing it was. Amazing. On that note, John, we've been, the hour's just about up. Oh, I right. Enough. Hopefully you'll come on again in the well, near I hope, I hope that was all right. I haven't Absolutely. sent you to sleep. Absolutely. John, it was an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. And a pleasure for me. Just Pleasure sitting there listening to, to, you know, from the period that we were all growing up and watching Liverpool. It was just fascinating to sit there and listen to you. Well, that's very Thank kind. Thank you very much. Listen, with a name like Keegan, it's a pleasure. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's great. Nice nice to talk to you, boys. Yeah, and John, you, and you. before, you, before yeah. you, you run away. Oh, yes, yes. Can I, can I just say... We're starting and we're starting a new podcast, and it's called it's called um, Merseyside Legends with John Keith, and it's on Spotify, and you can get it by just searching Merseyside Legends with John Keith. And the first of our podcasts is about and featuring the great and one and only Bill Shankly. So please, uh, please tune in to us. Merseyside Legends with John Keith. Also, you can get it by going to my Twitter account at John Keith UK. Okay, brilliant. And I hope you'll Thanks, join John. us again soon, John, to continue the to continue the story from from when Kenny took over from Joe Fagan. Okay, well, what an, another time? You mean? Yeah. Yes, I'll do that. Yeah, no brilliant. problem. No problem. Okay. Thank Thanks, you, gents. Oh, so, thank you. Yeah. So that's the end of the latest edition of the LFC Red Poets podcast. A big thank you to, to Pete and Tom, as always, and to our special guest, John Keith, who's given us just over an hour of magnificent memories thank for you. us all to take in and for some newer listeners to, to think how lucky we were to have lived through that, that era of Liverpool Football Club. So until next time, as I always say, justice for the 97, don't buy the sun, and you'll never walk alone. Until next time, goodbye.